This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Welcome to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. I'm Brian Clark. The first six days of play here in the U.S. Open bubble have been extraordinary. First major since January has seen maybe the best performance at a major yet from the rising stars of the sport. We've also seen continued dominance from the world number one, Novak Djokovic. We've also been adapting to the new conditions. No fans in attendance except for their faces shown on the courtside video screens. Everybody's wearing masks and maintaining distance. And we'll talk more about some of the highlights of the first week in a bit. But first, I was able to sit down at a distance with one of the few people here on site in the bubble. It's a former world number five, the American Jimmy Arias. He's now director of tennis at IMG Academy in Florida. And I started by saying that when he reached the semifinals here in 1983, he didn't need to wear a mask. Well, I didn't have to wear a mask, but I also only won $30,000 for my semifinal. So, you know, there's give and take at all times, I I would say. Um, I would have preferred making the semis this year in some ways. With a mask, yes. With a mask, exactly. That would have been a a good bit of money. Um, Let's just start. Okay, we're a week out from the semifinals. We're sitting here. It's Saturday evening. Novak Djokovic still in this tournament. You talk tennis in 2020, you're talking about Novak Djokovic in one way or another. And so much of when he comes on court, it seems like, like it's a mindset. Like he already has the match won. Is that is there truth to that? Yes, I think there is a little truth to that. I mean, that players today are better than in my era as far as feeling as though they're going in with a chance because players today have so many weapons that they feel as though if I'm hot, if I'm on, I don't care who you are, I'm going to be able to to knock you off the court. There's two problems with Djokovic. One you have to be hot for about three or four hours, and you have to hit five extra bombs to win one point against him. So, and in three out of five sets, it starts to feel impossible at a certain point in time, and you can see that when he's playing matches. He's been losing a set or having struggling for a set or so, but once he sort of sinks himself into the match, it, it, it's slow death for the opponent, it seems like. So last year in the semifinal, that situation just laid out. Matteo Berrettini, I'm just thinking randomly, first set against Nadal, pushes him to the brink. It's like an 80-minute set, loses in a tiebreak, Nadal wins it, and the match was like it was over. Is that just a, here's a young guy, major semifinal, throws everything at Nadal and has nothing to show for it. Is, is that the mental thing we kind of talk about, whether it's Djokovic or Nadal? Yes, but you also got to remember Berrettini, if I'm not mistaken, had a 7-6 in the fifth. Uh, match in the quarterfinals and now he's playing Nadal in a 80 minute first set that he plays his heart out and loses it's easy to get slightly ahead of yourself and once you do you're finished so I'm not saying that's what happened there I don't know but but yeah I think look those three guys and at one time Murray would have been the fourth but Federer, Nadal, Djokovic are better than everybody and anybody that's ever played tennis. And two of the guys are so physical, Nadal and, and Djokovic, their matches are so physical that three out of five sets favors them even more, as, as opposed to Federer has to beat you with his style and his winners, but you're not going to be exhausted necessarily when you're playing him. 
But the other two guys in three out of five sets, it's it's you have to play at a level that no one really in the world can do except them. Out of those three, who's the best mentally over their career from what you've seen? Well, I, not that I should be getting negative in any way, especially about this guy, but I would say the worst mentally is Federer. So Federer's the most talented player you've ever seen. And he's won so many of his tournaments and his matches where he's just sort of overwhelmed his opponents a lot of times. Um, but if you count the times that he's played really tight matches with Nadal and Djokovic, he usually loses those. And that's when it comes down to the mental side of things. And last year's Wimbledon's a perfect example. And he played a, he's lost a handful of matches to Djokovic having had a match point. Um, Back-to-back years here yes. in the semis. So yeah, it's, it's happened to him a few times. I don't think it's ever happened the other way. Um, you know, he's one of sheer. I don't want to make it sound like he's mentally weak, Federer, by any means. But those two guys, I would say I would actually put Djokovic at number one and Nadal at number two. But it may, it's difficult for me because Nadal's the only guy I've ever met or seen that sort of, whether he's playing a guy 500 in the world or two in the world, plays every single point like it's the biggest point he's ever played. And Djokovic sort of, he can save it for, for when he needs it. Um, but when it comes down to that clutch situation, it's amazing. I, I remember commentating a Novak Djokovic-Juan Martin Del Potro match. I was sideline reporter for ESPN in Cincinnati. And you could, a couple of times, Djokovic got down break point, And you could see the look in his face was, I am not going to miss this point. And he just solidly didn't try to do too much, but he hit it solid, deep. And, you know, he's playing a guy that can hit a forehand 110 miles an hour in the corner. And he's confident enough in his movement that I am not going to miss this point. And, you know, he ended up winning in straight sets that match. Thinking about the guys who aren't here because we're talking about them, Nadal and Federer, this tournament's so strange with no fans. It's great just that we're back playing major tennis. Is it lacking without those two here first time in 21 years we don't have either of them at the u.s open well yes it's lacking because we don't have them it's lacking because we don't have fans so it's not you know this doesn't feel like the u.s open to me i mean it does help some of the younger guys we go play in ash with no people and all of a sudden it's not the same sort of nerves your adrenaline it's, it, your adrenaline's not completely flowing as it would if there were 20,000 fans screaming for you or against you either way. So in some ways it helps the underdog a little bit that's not used to that situation. It gives them at least a little sense of, you know, it's a practice match kind of feeling because there's no noise. It's the strangest thing. And obviously anytime you're not having Nadal and Federer right now, it's, it's, doesn't feel quite right. Um, Having said that, if Djokovic wins this, no one's ever going to say, uh, uh, whoever wins this, they won a major. And there's no, you know, that's, that's all you can say. And there really, there have been times over the years when Nadal's been injured and missed majors, where Murray obviously has been missing majors over the years. Federer, I think, has missed a couple of majors. So, you know, it's not unprecedented that they're not all here. Especially Murray, and I... That comeback against Nishioka was crazy, coming back from two sets to love down. It felt like the old Andy Murray, but then he had 
it seemed like nothing left against Felix Auger-Aliassime. And I was watching on the world feed, you were doing that match with Mary Carrillo, and you made an interesting point with Andy, kind of comparing him almost to what, to what Roger has done, where the body is not what it was 10 years ago. It's not that for anybody. So can he be more offensive? Is that something that he can find and create at 33 years old coming off all these surgeries? Yes, I think the answer is yes, because he does have weapons. He's chosen over the years to not use them, really, in a lot of ways. He's relied on that incredible defensive skill that he has, that he had. I don't know that he has it any longer. Um, He didn't want to take risks, so his natural reaction or his natural mindset is, I can win without taking a risk, so why take risks on shots? At some point, if he wants to keep playing at a level where he's coming close to, to, you know, where he would like to be, obviously, where he's been in the past, he's got to be willing to take those risks on shots that he didn't used to be comfortable with. And, you know, I think he's still quick enough. It's hard. That match was difficult because Oji Aliassime is absolutely bludgeoning the ball. Like, he could, he could win this tournament playing if he serves like that. Because that was the one weakness he had. His serve was was a bit of a struggle. Felix is part of three Canadians that are through to the th- fourth round of this tournament. Denis Shapovalov came back to beat Taylor Fritz. And then Vashik Pospisil came back from two sets to one down to beat Roberto Bautista. What do you make of what is going on in terms of these young Canadians? Because they look like a force. I felt like that usually you have a group of players that push each other because they're they're better than than normal or they're better than average and Canada just happened to have that with Raonic Pospisil together they sort of were able to push each other along and and then Ojeali Asim and Shapovalov able to sort of challenge each other push each other while they practice together and as soon as one of them has success so Shapovalov had crazy success at 17 that you wouldn't have expected out of nowhere he gets a wild card in, in Rogers Cup beats and Nadal. beats Nadal. He beats Del Potro. And, you know, um, and I think that immediately went to Felix. And Felix's mind was, wait a minute, I can beat him in practice half the time. And he, I, I'm, re- I'm as good, too. I can play on the tour as well. And that's sort of how it works. Um, and it's just a, a golden time for Canadian tennis right now, um, you know. And Drescu won the U.S. Open in the women's side last year. So they're doing something right, obviously, with their federation. But I just feel like it's more of the players. Players dictate how good other players get. So if you are growing up competing, you look through the years in the junior ranks. And you'll always see, like, one year where there's four or five players that have played all the junior U.S. Opens and things. And they're all ranked in the top 15 in the world eventually. They all pushed each other. And then you'll go four or five years where none of those guys get anywhere, really. There are 100 in the world. There are 70 in the world. And then all of a sudden you'll have another class of, of guys. Like the U.S.'s class that was pretty good was Taylor Fritz, Francis Tiafo, Tommy Paul, Riley Opelka. They pushed each other. They're pretty good. They haven't quite pushed each other to the heights. But I think if one of them breaks through completely it might spur the other ones on what does a complete breakthrough mean for those americans i mean finals of a major semis of finals of a major something 
extra special. I mean, right now they're good. They're all right tour players. Right. You know, but. And it, it seemed like Fritz had taken the most steps. I mean, he made that final in Acapulco right before the shutdown where he was beaten pretty soundly by Nadal. But a really disappointing way for him to lose to Shapovalov when he was up in that fourth set and then fall in the fifth. So it, it's just an interesting group to watch. It is. I, I, I feel like the one that will break through. I, you're right about Fritz being the one who sort of, he has a few things going for him. Number one, he believes in himself. Number two, he does have big serve, big ground strokes. Um, weakness was he didn't move as well as maybe he needed to, but that's improved. So, you know, doesn't volley as well as he needs to. But he's improving. He's working hard on his game. Um, but the one that's going to be top ten unless he just can't get out of bed and gets injured is Riley Opelka. He's seven feet tall. He can run for a seven-footer. His two and a backhand's pure. Um, he plays an intelligent style for him by ripping every ball as hard as he can because he knows he's going to hold serve. And if he happens to make four balls returning, he's going to break your serve possibly. So I expect him, if he can mentally, you know, not say things. I was happened to be watching a match he played where he was serving at 5-6 in the final set, and I was in the player box. So I was right on the court, right where he gets his towel. And it's 15-all, 5-6 serving in the final set. He hits double fault, double fault. So gets down double match point, comes over to his towel, and he's just saying over and over again, I should have played team sports. I should have played team sports, which I thought was hilarious. He then, by the way, went on and hit two or three aces and won the match in a tiebreak in the third set. Uh, okay. I guess he liked individual sports a bit after Afterwards, that too. Yeah. yeah. But not after those two doubles. And with... These Americans are talking about these young guys. I should talk about your day job. You're the director of tennis at the IMG Academy. Developing young players, is this year going to be different because there aren't junior slams, there's no junior competition here? Is that going to matter in the long term? I mean, yes. You need to compete to become a great tennis player. So not having competition does set them back slightly. Now you got to find ways to make them feel competition. And one way that that's happening nowadays for these kids is UTR. For whatever reason, kids are really wrapped up in their UTR. So at the academy where I am, I'm making them play two to three UTR matches a week that count for their UTR. Um, It's not a tournament, but it's a tournament in their mind. And and it's a double. Uh, the one thing about the academy is the kids are more nervous for those matches because they also live with the kids they're playing against. So it's a big man on campus type feel to go along with their UTR ranking. It's a double whammy, and they feel the pressure. A lot of them. Is it all good, or are there drawbacks to being so wrapped up in the UTR? There's drawbacks. You shouldn't be that wrapped up in the UTR. But I under I, I understand it when you're a if you're thinking about college tennis and you're a junior and you're a senior or even a sophomore and you realize, wait a minute, I'm not going to be a pro or I'm, it's not, I'm not going to be a pro right now, then UTR matters because college coaches are going to look at your UTR. So, but when you're 13 years old, your UTR is completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter. And by the way, once you've gone to college, your UTR, I promise you Novak's not angry if his UTR drops below Nadal's. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. Right. But uh, young Jimmy Arias would have been wrapped up in a UTR, right? Mm, I don't know. 
actually. Probably. I mean, you know, I did always worry about my ranking, which annoys me that I had that attitude. I wish I had somebody that, you know, Brad Gilbert was the was the smarter one on the tour when I when I played the way they did the rankings was you had an average of so however many tournaments you played you divided your total points by the tournaments that you played but you started at 12 so if you only played two tournaments you're still dividing by 12 so obviously everyone was going to play 12 tournaments but then every tournament you played above 12 if you lost first round you've really hurt your ranking because you're you're getting that zero pointer and and bad things are happening there because right. you're just upping your divisor. So you, I would play 15, 14, 15 tournaments a year um, and pick the surfaces that I felt like I'm not going to get a zero pointer in and that kind of stuff. Gilbert played 35 weeks a year and he kept staying ranked 40, 50 in the world and he'd win four tournaments. Um, and I, I, I remember telling him, Brad, are you, are you an idiot or something? You, you'd be ranked top 20 if you, if you just picked the right tournaments and played the right schedule. He goes, every week there's a chance for me to win $50,000 and I just can't turn it down. And in the end of the day, when you retire, who cares if you're ranked 12, 15, 28, 40? It doesn't matter. And by the way, they changed the ranking eventually and, and so it didn't matter to Gilbert either. So talking about your time playing, though, because this strange tour year, we're going on clay after the U.S. Open. That's where you had some of your best success. The Rome Masters are coming up. That's a tournament you won. What do you remember about winning Rome? Um, well, I mean, the interesting thing for me was at that time I was 18 years old, and I remember thinking that I'm going to be number one in the world and one of the all-time greats. So, so winning Rome was no big deal annoyingly because it turned out to be the biggest tournament i won but um at that time at that moment it's it's what helped me win is that i sort of almost expected good results i expected to be a top player so so it it, it wasn't a it wasn't a big deal to me and i don't know in some ways i wish i had enjoyed that part a little more than i did you won at the same, I think the same year you won the U.S. Clay Court Championships. And that was, I remember you said that was a very big deal at the time. Which one kind of meant more to you? I in think 19- U.S. Clay Courts only because, at the time, because no American had won on U.S. Clay Courts since Jimmy Connors had done it, like, I don't know, eight or nine years earlier, whatever it was. I'd made the finals a year before and lost in a tight match. Um, I don't know. I just wanted that that win but I love yeah look I I love the fact that I won in Rome now and the other tournament that was sort of weird was when I was 16 I won the uh, French Open mixed doubles and I remember having that same exact thought like I'm gonna act excited because you're supposed to act excited when you win something but I'm gonna win 10 of these in singles so why do I care about mixed doubles the French it it turned out that's the only grand slam I ever won what do you remember about that about the French? The winning a uh, major title. Like you said, I mean, you're downplaying it, but you're still a major champion. I mean, I don't know. I, I can't, I, I don't know. I can't answer that question because it's sort of like there's a part of me that that was a different life. Really? It was a long time ago. I'm, it was 40 years ago. 1980? Yeah. You won that? Yeah. So do you see that mentality with other players that you were on tour with that when you see these guys now, you just talked about Brad Gilbert, is it 
is it like seeing somebody you went to school with? Is it somebody, do you pick up right where you left off? What's that like? Yeah, it's like someone you went to school with. It's, it's different because you used to compete against them. So there was always, you were holding a little something back. Um, and now you don't. Now they're just another guy that you know and you sort of relive the old times at, at certain times with them. And, uh, you know, it's fun actually being around. That's, that's your sort of family that you were with. You didn't realize it at the time. But as time goes on, that's, you know, it's a very clicky little thing, tennis. And we're, all the guys in my era seem to be hanging around doing TV or doing something, you know, all with tennis. That's a good thing. Um, so we're talking about the past, talk about the future here, because this tournament's so strange with no fans, but we see all these uh, screens courtside with, with fans checking in from home. We see the players handling their own towels. Any of these changes that you think are onto something that could bring tennis into a, a different place moving forward once we get out of this and we return to something like normal? Um, look, anything that that can create some fans for tennis and for sport in general, I'm, I'm all for. Um, I'm a little worried about sports because when I was a kid growing up, that's all you did. Everyone in the neighborhood went and played sports together, and it depended what season, which sport you were playing. And then, you know, video games came around and, and the Internet and things that now kids, I don't, if they play a sport, it's organized by parents and coaches, and, and it's, it's no longer just for fun. So I'm afraid that sports are going to actually lose a little luster, and maybe even more so now that they've been, it's been out of the public eye for a half a year, however it is, you know, all of sports in general. So I'm slightly worried about sports. Do you think this is a U.S. thing or worldwide? Well, I can't. I I definitely think U.S. and probably worldwide, but I'm not sure about the the rest of the world. But I can feel it in the U.S. I mean, I was disappointed that my son, I couldn't get him to to care about sports. And I took him to baseball games. I took him to basketball games. I took him and he wanted to get back and shoot people on his, you know, video game, whatever those games are called. So and I think he's not alone in that. I think there's a lot of a lot of kids that way. He now teaches tennis, by the way, but that's another story. Came full circle. But no, yeah. I'm shaking my head, yes, because I, I agree with you in a lot of ways. So that is fascinating. But before we wrap this up, just these young players, as we talk about maybe as them as the future, we were just talking about some of these guys who are from the American side, the Canadian side, but looking internationally, Dominic Team, Sasha Zverev, Stefano Tsitsipas, who lost that heartbreak to Borna Chorch. Does it look like that things are in good shape with them at the front of the sport going forward in like a post-Federer-Nadal world? Actually, surprisingly, yes, because I think they're, they're, they're exciting, they're fun to watch, a lot of those players, and they're, they're interesting. So that's a good thing. Obviously, you need personalities for people to get involved in tennis. I mean, team sports, you got your city, so you're cheering for your team, and you, you feel some connection to the, to the sport. And tennis, you kind of have to have a connection with the player and if everyone acts exactly the same way it's kind of difficult for a fan to choose which one they want it's been sort of nice the contrast of you know the cool calm collected fetter who plays so beautifully that people okay i like him i love the way he plays and then you got Nadal who's gonna you know do whatever 
it takes to win a match. And so you, you have those sort of camps that, that they really identify with those different styles. And you have to have that, I think, for tennis to continue. I, I think Sissipas brings some excitement. I think, you know, Zverev had some trouble serving for a while. So it's always fun to see a human thing going on. Um, so it should, it should stay interesting, I hope. Who's been impressive for you as we sit here Saturday? So most of the round, or half the round of 16 is kind of set. Who has been really impressive to you through this first week or so of the tournament? Um, I would say Oje Aliassim. Um, he, he's always had sort of the weapons, but he's always had a game or two where he just throws away a service game with two double faults and two first ball errors. And he hasn't done that in his last couple of matches. So if he can continue sort of at that level, he's going to be awfully dangerous. He's a great athlete, and he's impressed me quite a bit. Jen Brady, too, actually, on the, on the women's side. She's, she's looking as though I, I think she has... She has a chance out of nowhere, sort of, to win a win this tournament. Absolutely. I, why not? Yeah. That's the story of 2020, right? Exactly. Our thanks to Jimmy Arias for that conversation. And as we talked about, three Canadian men, Denis Shapovalov, Felix Auger-Aliassime, and Vashik Pospisil, reached the round of 16. That's the first time that's ever happened. Pospisil hit 71 winners in his third round win over Roberto Bautista Goop, and that was one round after he beat a fellow Canadian, Milos Raonic. Shapovalov and Felix Auger-Aliassime represent two of the 10 members of the last 16 under the age of 24. Borna Chorich is another, and he played maybe the most dramatic match of the tournament. His ticket to the last 16 was punched by saving six match points to come back to beat Stefano Tsitsipas in five. But looming over everything, it is the world number one. Novak Djokovic entered this tournament unbeaten on the year as he seeks a fourth U.S. Open crown and a 16th major title. Those dreams still very much alive. So that's about it. Please note the ATP Tennis Radio live channel, which is available on TuneIn and the ATP Tour website, will simulcast U.S. Open radio throughout the tournament. I'm a member of that team. We've had a great time with some of the analysts, uh, legends like Mark Woodford, some women's tennis legends like Zena Garrison. We're having an absolute blast. So please join us for live ball-by-ball coverage. It's simulcast right on the ATP Tennis Radio live channel. I'll be back next weekend with another podcast. We'll recap the tournament after we have crowned a U.S. Open champion for 2020. For right now, though, I'm Brian Clark. Enjoy the tennis. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. Review.